The sermon text reading is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you know, at some churches, they got mic drops. We have guitar drops. So um, that was a very well-timed one, by the way, in a a heavy part of the Scripture. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan DeCrisio. I'm one of the elders here at City Church Eastside. So great to be spending some time with you here this morning as we wrap up. July, can you believe that? One thing I confess to you all this morning is I'm not really a movie buff. Not really a movie buff, you know. My wife likes to make fun of me uh, a little bit about that. She says, weren't you a film major in college, at least in your start? Why haven't you seen this or that particular movie? I mean, I just saw Star Wars really the whole way through about five or ten years ago. And you're like, why am I even listening to this guy right now? No credibility. Despite my movie lameness, I like to think about movies and the art of filmmaking, like what works and, you know, what doesn't work in a particular film. And one of the things I love, and maybe you love too, are surprise endings. Surprise endings. Like for an hour and a half, you're watching this movie and the plot thickens, maybe the confusion grows, and then in the last ten minutes or so, bam, surprise ending, a big reveal, and you're like, wow, or or what just happened? Or maybe, oh, it, it all makes sense now. So, I'm pretty movie ignorant, as I mentioned to you just a couple of minutes ago. So I had to phone a friend this week, and I pinged Jim and Mike Bolin and Andrew Krigler. I said, I need a list of movies with surprise endings. I mean, we all know The Sixth Sense, of course. I mean, that shows up in probably every other sermon at some point. But how about The Prestige? Or primal fear, what lies beneath, and the aforementioned Luke, I'm your father, Star Wars, which by the way, I'm not sure which Star Wars that was in, maybe someone knows, Empire Strikes Back, Jedi, one that doesn't have Jar Jar Binks in it, 
Now, you know we're in the series here, Seeing, Savoring, Showing Jesus. Maybe not in that order. But you're probably wondering this morning, whoa, hold on a second. Dan, did you get your Bible verses messed up? I mean, the first scripture we read was from the New Testament. Now you're reading from the Old Testament? We're we're learning about Sarai and the angel of the Lord. Where's Jesus at? Why are we in the Old Testament? Well, one thing I want to call uh, to your attention is, Remember, actually, in the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he meets two disciples out on the road. The road to Emmaus. Jesus doesn't really reveal himself to these guys. You know, he sort of plays dumb a little bit. The disciples are, of course, talking about the amazing, miraculous, surprising events of that day. When, you know, the, the, the empty tomb, for example. And they're a bit confused. They're a bit upset with what's going on. And. Jesus breaks in and he says this, Luke 24 says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And those disciples, they were amazed. They were like, Wow, surprise ending here. Did our, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures? You see, in a lot of ways, you know, Jesus is the surprise ending here, you know, to the Old Testament. But just like um, all of those great movies, or most of those great movies with surprise endings, you learn that we shouldn't have been surprised. We shouldn't have been surprised all along, just like the sixth sense. You know, you love to watch that movie back and you're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't see this in the movie. He was dead the whole time. And when we look in the Old Testament, we see Jesus is alive the whole time. He was alive the whole time. And he's in Isaiah and Psalms and Numbers and here in Genesis. With that being said, uh, not going to argue that the angel of the Lord is actually pre-incarnate Jesus. I personally believe that, but, you know, it's not a huge theological point. But here, I want us to get really what is important is the message. And the message of the Lord, the message from the Lord is the same either way. It's surprising this slave girl, Hagar, with hope and resurrection life. And that is so consistent with how God and Jesus breaks through in Scripture, and in our lives. So let's see that and savor that today, friends. So our our points this morning, the reconciliation looks like this. Number one, we scheme, he sees, and he saves. So our three points this morning, we, we scheme, he sees, he saves. Without reconciliation, we are what? We are dead in our sins, we're dead in our scheming, but he sees. And he saves. So when I was uh, seven years old, which was back in 1985, I was obsessed with not Atari and clearly not Star Wars. It was Madonna. <laughs> didn't expect that. You didn't see that coming, did you? I loved Madonna. It explains a lot about me. If you've been in a men's group with me. I love Madonna, Borderline, such a great song, by the way. 
get into the groove. And if you know Madonna history, in 1985, her first movie came out, which was called Desperately Seeking Susan. I wanted to see that movie so bad, I wanted to see Madonna. I was desperately seeking to see Desperately Seeking Susan. But there was a couple of problems. Number one, it was playing like in three theaters in western Pennsylvania. Number two, I was seven years old and probably shouldn't go see Desperately Seeking Susan. (laughs) Two big problems. And you're probably wondering, why are we talking about Madonna now? Old Testament, New Testament, now we're on to Madonna. And I just love that phrase, desperately seeking. Desperately seeking, because I think we can all relate to that, because, you know, either right now in your lives or my lives or in the past, we're all desperately seeking something, right? We all have a desperately seeking fill in the blank. And behind that desperately seeking, there's another important word called desire. Desire is behind our desperately seeking. And, you know, sometimes desire gets a bad rap in Christian teaching and If you've been around the Wellspring program or in any counseling session with Mike Bolin, you you learn that desire in and of itself is not bad. There's something about our desire that when we look at it, we evaluate it, it, it can be good. It actually compels us to seek. Let's evaluate here Abram and Sarah, which, by the way, if you know these two, they're the father and mother of our faith. And their names, of course, are eventually changed to Abraham and Sarah. And for the sake of simplicity, from here on out, I'm going to refer to them as Abraham and Sarah. So, the first line of our text this morning says what? Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Question for us, you maybe are wondering, is this a problem? Is this, a, is this a problem? Well, I mean, plenty of people don't have children, and, and that's completely fine. But, you know, I think we need to dig into this a little bit more. And when you want to understand Scripture and what Scripture's saying, you have to do some things. You've got to put your Sherlock Holmes hat on and, and sort, of, sort of say, hey, what's the culture and the time period and the history? And maybe some other Scripture that is connected to it to help me sort of understand. That's a, a big fancy word called hermeneutics. So we're going to get all a little hermeneutical here, at least lightly, and we're going to back up and look at Genesis 15 here for a little context. It says this, and we're going to put this on the screen. This is about 10 years or so earlier. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Good old Eliezer. And Abraham said, you have given me, God, no children, so I guess a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, no, 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 no. This man that you're referring to will not be your heir, but a son who is in your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Uh Uh-oh, okay, we can sort of see the tension here, right? Between 16 and 15. You know, 10 years now have passed, and they haven't gotten pregnant. Sarah is still barren. So we, we have this huge, unbelievable promise that he gives Abraham, but it just has not happened yet. 
And what's the desire behind this? It's a good desire, right? Abraham and Sarah want to have a child, want to start a family. And oh, by the way, like God is promising great things for this child as, as well, too. This has them doing what? Ten years later. Desperately seeking. Desperately seeking. Pastor Scott likes to say, you know, our faith is a theology of waiting. And the great Tom Petty would say, the waiting is the hardest part. Got to have one music reference in here. Well, time causes a problem, doesn't it? Time causes a problem for our desires. It creates tension like a rubber band. Time is not on the side of Abraham and Sarah here. They're in their 80s and, and 90s or so. So again, this tension between time and desire now has them desperately seeking. They're desperately seeking and they're choosing an option or importing an option that is not in God's playbook now. It's not in God's will. And I, I say, friends, we do this all the time ourselves, don't we? That's a great challenge of us in our character. We do what? Exactly what Abraham and Sarah are doing. Do we do this thing ourselves? Do we do this thing in our own strength? Do we trust biology or, or to do something that seems natural to us but is immoral to make it happen? And friends, I think for us, and here in Abraham and Sarah, this is where things start to get ugly. When we're choosing to do these things in our own strength as opposed to abiding in and trusting in God, it's that when we take our desires and then add it to you know, the desperately seeking, if we're not abiding and being under the lordship of the Lord here, what ends up happening is we start desperately scheming. We start to sinfully scheme, and Sarah, uh, seemingly with some previous ideation... <laughs> from uh, from uh, Abraham, as you can see back in 15, cooks up a scheme. We read it this morning. Now, I want us to pause here, because uh, I think this is really important. Sarah, of course, screws up. She screws up big time with her scheme. But I, I think that we can be unfair to these women in these situations. I think we can be, in, 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 you know, miss sort of like, a really important point in all of this here. You've got Sarah, and then 13 chapters earlier, you have Eve as well, too, making some big mistakes, of course. They have agency in this problem here, but I think a lot of Christian traditions and denominations can really take it a little bit too far and almost handle this in a, a misogynistic type of way. And at the very least, a poorly theological way, too, because they're being a bit unfair and missing one of the big points. And one of the big points is this, is this is a massive failure on Abraham's part. This is a massive failure on Abraham's part, just like what happened in the garden was a massive failure on the part of Adam. I mean, let's enter in. Here with Sarah. Put ourselves in, in the position that she was in cultural, physiological, psychological. That at this time, if you're a woman, your worth was completely tied to you producing children and completely tied to producing heirs. And that's what it was. If you could not produce a child in this time, you were what? A failure. Now, 
if that wasn't more challenging enough, on top of that, there's theological pressure. There's theological pressure here around this. I mean, no big deal that one of your great, 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 great grandchildren is going to save the world from its sins. And I'm sure your husband, your hubby Abraham's probably been reminding you this for the last 10 years, and you're probably sick of hearing it, and, and now you're desperate. And just think about it. She's like, you, uh, you know, Abraham, I, I just can't take it. Go sleep with Hagar, okay? Just let's get this done. You can have her. Again, bad idea, Sarah. Bad idea. But Abraham, Abraham, this is your chance. This is your chance to trust God. He's been talking to you for years. This is your chance to trust Him and then lead your wife and your family well and what? He blows it. Instead of faith, Abraham chooses flesh. Instead of faith, Abraham chooses foolishness. Men, uh, I'm preaching to myself on this. Many times, this is our besetting sin. Man, many times this is our sin that keeps creeping up and can't go away. Just like the man in the mirror, we forget who we are and who God is. And we're silent when we should speak. And we hide and numb when we should be guarding and protecting. For as many men that I talk to that have had an abusive father, I've talked to two or three more that have had an absent or silent father. And it is. Messed them up just the same. No different is our father Abraham. No different here is father Abraham. He had a chance to give Sarah the gospel, but he chooses to bless the sinful scheme. Now, I promise we're going to we will get to the second point here. And, and also, by the way, the second third point will be really short. <laughs> just if you're thinking about lunch now or something like that, it's like, wow, we're spending a lot of time here. The reason why we're spending a lot of time here is I want us to sit down, put our tray tables up and our seatbelts on, and sit in this. I want us to sit in this to, to sort of hear and feel and see what's going on. You can imagine this sort of movie scene where you have Abraham and Sarah in a, in a room that's sort of arguing and fighting about you know, what's going to happen and what's going on and talking. And a few doors down, there's this young girl. There's this young girl who's listening to all of it. And then there's silence. And then there's footsteps. And Sarah walks into the room and says, or I should say, gives the instructions. Just sit in that for a second. You know, we don't know much about this girl, this slave girl. We do know she's from Egypt. We don't necessarily know anything that is cool or unique or special or, or beautiful about this girl. She's pretty invisible for the most part. She's pretty invisible. But what we do know is that Abraham and Sarah has really tied up her worth and how she's going to now produce and do this job. That she's going to produce children uh, for them. And I have to replay all of this word from word, but we know what happens. We read the scripture this morning. We know what happens. This girl is used and abused. Then there's fits of rage, jealousy, and anger between Sarah and her. And it gets so bad in this house that she flees Abraham and Sarah and goes out into the hot, dry desert 
as a pregnant woman. She is alone. She is alienated. She is hopeless. She has been failed by men, failed by a family, and now she seeks death over life, whether she knows it or not. Question for us all, does this whole mess that happened thousands of years ago seem relevant to us today? Does it seem relevant to us today? What we need to do is put ourselves here in the text in our current cultural situation and feel the pain of Sarah, her desires, her desperation, her scheme, and the pain of the slave girl here, who likely also, as a young girl, has hopes and dreams, is now desperate. And Abraham, his failure, his failure to lead. You put all this stuff together in a pot, and what do we got? We got the ingredients potentially for abortion. We, at the very least, we have the ingredients for a very difficult pregnancy. It is so easy for us in this day to focus, you know, to read our social media posts and all that stuff and focus on, you know, having the right laws and having the right politics. And we can just easily blow by, blow by the situations and the implications of these big moral decisions. We can blow by it. Number one, we could so easily forget the man, the father-to-be's role in caring, guarding, and protecting. Just like Father Abraham. There's a crazy statistic out there that says, says this, that you know, in a difficult pregnancy uh, and with a woman potentially considering abortion, that 80% of the time that when a man is present and engaged, she chooses not to. 80% of the time. So, I mean, I mean careers and, and health and age and all that stuff is a factor, but it's less so than if a man is present and is going to take responsibility and lead. And for me, friends, that's a, that's a great reason to protest for women. I mean, women should be protesting this increasing chronic problem that there is with masculinity in our culture. We protest when it's toxic, and that's good, and me too, that's good. But do we protest when it's absent? Do we protest when it is non-existent or snuffed out? We miss this, don't we? We miss this, and we can so easily miss Abraham's role in this whole mess today. The second thing that we can miss, friends, is compassion. We can so miss compassion. Is there any compassion here? Did Abraham and Sarah go after Hagar? There's at least no record of it. We do not see that in here. This alienated, abused, and invisible young woman, I mean, she's basically a widow. She's dead to Abraham. Abraham's dead to her and this child-to-be. Without child, without father, you know, uh, without husband, I should say, she's basically a widow or orphan in the making, even if this pregnancy comes to term in the hot, dry desert. Now, God is crystal clear about this. God is crystal clear about this. His children, his ambassadors of his character, the Jews and us 
as Christians, that we are to care, guard, and protect the widows and the orphans, the children and the women who are out on the margins. And that is the thing that sets us apart, clearly sets us apart for the care and the love of those on the margins. This isn't, this isn't a Republican or a Democrat issue. You know, politics a lot of times takes a slice of justice, takes a little slice of God's justice, and then makes it a badge of righteousness, but God's justice is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. It's wholehearted. It's two things. It's that men need to step up and be men, and that women need great compassion and care. The slave girl here, she's unseen. Notice that Abraham and Sarah, they don't even call her by her name up until this point. But there's one who does. There is one who does. Let's read verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar. He calls her her name. Hagar. Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar goes on to tell God she's fleeing Sarah, and the Lord says this, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, God says Ishmael, he will be a father to many, um, and she needs to return. She needs to go back under the care of of Abraham and Sarah, even though that that was not, of course, good. And we'll get to that in a, in a minute or two here. But despite that, Hagar responds. How does she respond? She responds in such a beautiful way. She actually gives God a name. She says this. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who looks after me. A God of seeing. A God who looks after her. Now, I want us to stop and consider just how absolutely amazing this is. I mean, we're pretty much here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 16, at the beginning of God's great rescue plan, as the Jesus Storybook Bible, you know, likes to say. And we have now this Egyptian young woman who is pregnant, used and abused by the father and mother of our faith. She's left for dead in the desert. We don't have any record, at least at this time, of, of any righteousness in her. She didn't really pray to God for this particular thing to happen or for him to come to her. But nonetheless, she is seen by him. She is seen by him. She is known by him. She is called her name by God. And she's an Egyptian slave girl. And she actually names God. And it's here in the Bible thousands of years later for us to talk about process and pray through. Isn't that amazing? 
Dan Allender, uh, uh, which Mike brought to my attention earlier this week, loves this passage. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Because he notes how special it is and how special God's names are. That those who give God a name, those who give God a name are naming God, not in the good times, but actually in the dark night of the soul, in the suffering, and in the darkness That it's our brokenness and alienation that's when we especially see God is God Almighty, El Shaddai. God the provider, Jehovah Jireh. God the peacemaker, Jehovah Shalom. God the healer, Jehovah Rapta. And God who sees, as we have in our scripture, El Roy. What is your name for God? What is your name for God? It doesn't have to be overly theological or Hebrew or Greek. It can be in your own language. Where has he met you in your brokenness and suffering? And what is your name for him? This is all throughout Scripture, friends, both in word and deed. God, Jesus, are reaching out to us in our brokenness, in our dark night of the soul, in our suffering. And we're responding, and people were responding, with giving a name to God. Or running into the village like we see at the woman of the well and telling others about his goodness and all the other women that Jesus meets in the the New Testament. You could probably be thinking about them and their struggles with men, with culture, with their biology. Jesus, God, he breaks through the darkness, the silence, and he sees you. He sees you. Maybe the world doesn't see you. Maybe you feel that way this morning. I'm especially speaking to the women here. Maybe the world doesn't see you. Maybe your family, your husband, your boyfriend, maybe he hasn't seen you as well too. Maybe your boss hasn't seen you. Maybe the world has a fix for you. Maybe a particular scheme to fix your particular problem Women, you have come a long way, baby, as the Virginia Slims commercial used to say. you come a long way, baby. Your worth isn't completely 100% tied to childbearing anymore. But the question is, what yoke is the culture putting on your heads today? What yoke is putting on you today? What do you have to be to be worth something? Maybe you're struggling with starting a family and you've had some setbacks. Maybe you're struggling with with having a a husband or pursuing a husband. And maybe today for you, it's all of those things. Plus, it's that I got to be the right weight. I got to be at the right school. I got to have the right career. I got to send my kids to the right school. I got to be all of these things. Can we appreciate the crushing weight and yoke that our culture puts on women these days? Can we appreciate it? Can we appreciate how our culture tells men to shut up to? Don't speak. Stay silent. Be silent. Annie's going to come up here uh, toward the end. She's going to lead us at the end of service in a song. I really want the words to fall heavy on your heart this morning, to cut you to the heart. It's a song we sing here frequently. We did it last week, too. It goes like this. It goes, in the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light. Till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. 
there was mercy in your eyes. God ran to Hagar with mercy in his eyes. God runs to you and me with mercy in his eyes. He sees you. He just doesn't do that, though. He saves you. He sees you, and then he saves you. We have a God who saves. Final point here. The gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. The gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it, it is surprising, but we shouldn't be surprised, right? It's surprising, but we shouldn't be surprised. It is for all times. It's for all times of our lives, but it's especially for the hard times. It's especially for the hard times. Let me paraphrase the angel of the Lord here, who, again, I say is Jesus. Angel of the Lord says to Hagar, says this, I'm going to turn your hopelessness into hope. I'm going to turn what seems to be an end into a new beginning. I'm going to take this yoke that the culture puts around your head, and I'm going to give you a new one. And its burden is light. Its burden is light. You are not invisible. You are valuable. And in addition to that, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you until the end of the day, till the end of the age. Friends, this is resurrection life. This is what it looks like turning death into life looks like on this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? That's another thing our culture likes to do, our coin-operated culture. It's got to be easy. It's got to be convenient. It's got to be a, a great app that I can just press these buttons and easy comes out of it. Well, that's just not how it works, friends. I mean, as we see in the Scripture, God tells Hagar to return to these people that have been abusing her. I mean, imagine doing that or advising someone and doing that today. That's not going to go over very well. It's not going to go over very well. But again, God is good. And He's looking out for the best of Hagar. He sees the big picture. He has her best in mind. And honestly, it does not take much at all to convince Hagar. It does not take much to convince Hagar because as we read earlier, with all the seeing and the promises and the naming of God, she is met with his amazing grace, his amazing unmerited grace. And now she can return to a difficult situation, a terrible situation with security and confidence. The Father God will be with her and her baby saving them from almost certain death in the hot, dry desert. Now, there's something for us here. There's a, there's a lot for us, of course. As hopefully, you're tracking along with me in all of this here today. We, we should not be surprised by suffering. The, the gospel does not guarantee that we're going to have an easy life and that the tension is going to be removed, these, this tension and the sin and the tension between desires and time and patience. But the reality is the gospel equips us to live in it. Paul tells us about putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians. We shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes or the suffering comes, but we should be surprised by His amazing grace and provision in it. We should be surprised by hope, a hope for you and I, that will not put us to shame, friends. So our takeaway here today is we do have a choice. 
We can choose the opposite of these things that I'm going to talk about, but I propose we choose them. And for us men, I, I, I say this. We need to put our, our lives under the lordship of Jesus to be encouraged, take care, take responsibility, guard, and protect. Women, you have an everlasting Father in heaven who loves you, who sees you and will be with you even if men fail you. There is a Father in heaven who sees you and loves you until the end of the age. And for us all together, friends, that we are to have compassion. For us to be like God, not just for fun, to be like God, to reflect His character and have, Rakim, have compassion to those who are struggling and suffering to see them. They are not invisible. And to meet their needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually. N.T. Wright writes about this. And what are we to do in the book, Surprised by Hope? I'm going to put this up on the screen. Uh, Left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy. Acquiescing in general belief that things are going to get worse. And there's really not much that we can do about it. And we are wrong. Our task is in the present, is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day. With our Christian life, corporate and individual, both in worship and in mission, as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. There are practical ways for us to work this out, friends. We have the doxy, we've got to play out the praxy. I want to encourage us today to do the things that we talked about we talked about, and to be curious about opportunities to walk with women in this congregation and in this city. This is something that our our new deacons are super passionate about. We're praying about this. We're hoping for this. We want to see this come to fruition. This is one of the reasons why we need more women voices here in the church as well, too. To stir up one another to love and good works. And men who are going to be courageous and not cowards and lead, guard, protect, shepherd. So as we close, let us pray together for this resurrection life. Father God, Lord Jesus, uh, I come to you this morning as a man too who uh, struggles with this same thing. As so many times that I want to just sort of check out, Father. Um, Leave it to my wife, or Lord. And uh, Father God, I, I miss out on um, the gifts that you've given me, Lord, and the opportunity to lead, Father. And it's so easy for us to forget the women in our midst who, have, who are invisible, Father, who are struggling, who so much is expected to them, and how the world so unfairly puts so much on them. Father God, but you don't see us as, uh, Lord, as little workers or little, or little employees of this of this corporation that you have, Father. No, this is a household. This is a family on mission. You see us as sons and daughters. And you invite us into this family, Father, through grace. So encourage our hearts today, Father God, as we go forth to live as different people, a little bit lighter, a little bit more worshipful, a little bit more hopeful in these difficult situations. And let's give that away to the world 
to our neighbors and our community, Father God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.